Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. One of the things that a coach of mine actually helped me work through was creating a to-be list. So setting intentions first for the day and then with those intentions, they ran your to-do list. So what I mean by that is instead of on my to-do list today being I need to record a podcast with you guys, I need to do this, I need to do whatever, it becomes, all right, how do I want to be today? That's the first question that I'm asking when, when I wake up. I want to be present with the people that I'm with and I want to provide value to anyone that's listening in. Okay, cool. I'm going to set those intentions before I hop on this, before I hop on a phone call later today, before I hop in a meeting, whatever it may be. And with those intentions, then I'm able to show up and do the things way better than someone who's just like, oh, I'm just running from thing to thing, like a, a chicken with his head cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting clear on those intentions, I think, goes a long way. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Corey Camp. Corey is a personal performance coach, podcast host, and the founder of Rever Athlete Brand and Community. As a former swimmer and record holder at the University of Delaware, Corey recognizes the hidden mental health challenges in athletics and has committed himself to bringing awareness to these issues and helping former athletes lead healthier lives. He hosts the Athletic Mindset Podcast, which is dedicated to taking a deeper look into the mental health approach to elite athletes, and his brand, Forever Athlete, brings together athletes of all backgrounds to build community and grow together. Corey, welcome to the show. Welcome, boys. Thanks for coming by and stopping in my home here in LA. Excited to jam out. Likewise, man. Yeah, thank you for hosting. Excited to be here. And I think the place we'd like to start is really this forever athlete brand that we've been seeing you build the last few months. It's uh, for me, when I first heard it, the definition of forever an athlete seemed like an initial paradox of, you know, you associate with athletics for a specific season or a period of life. Mm-hmm. So I just love this forever athlete kind of idea. And I was wondering if you could walk us through, kind of unpack what it means to you, <laughs> yeah, how it came man. to be. Yeah. So really like you touched on it in the intro um i grew up a swimmer and that was a big part of who i was my identity so when that was taken away from me my final season ended i was like left scratching my head looking around looking in a mirror and being like i don't recognize that dude like who is that and for a while i was being told by everyone else like well that's cool man you're a former athlete like that's sick that you did all this stuff but you know what are you doing now and i just kept furthering this gap of feeling like I achieved everything that I wanted to in, in my swimming career, and now I'm just like, okay, I don't know what left, you know, what's left to do. And it wasn't until, honestly, early 2020, I started to really find my stride in my own physical abilities again. I was like, huh, what if I stopped viewing myself as a former athlete and someone that is like always going to be an athlete? forever athlete that sounds pretty cool and to me it was this paradox this contrast of former athlete implies we're in this box like everything it's in the past we can't control it anymore so we can't change anything there whereas forever is this open-ended exciting ever-growing thing to me where i'm like all right it could show up in something physical that I'm doing or it can show up in a conversation that I'm having with people 
the coaching that I'm doing, and it becomes this ever expansive thing rather than just this simple, easily defined label of like, hey, this is who you are. And that's just really come about from my own identity struggles, and we can dive into that if you guys want to, but that's really where it came from. Yeah, I love that, man. On so many levels, I think the element of forever like implies potential, right? Like mm-hmm. you said, expanding the boxes, redefining what those boxes may look like. And I think I would like to go back a little bit, just maybe some context around your story. Uh, we're really big believers that our personal experiences build who we are today. So I think having that, I guess, story of what your athletic career in college looked like yeah. and even how you responded to that adversity that you mentioned, like you said, your season was taken away from you, but I'd love to hear what the story was or like how that came to be. Yeah. So we'll, we'll take it way back for when I first got into swimming it on paper, it looks like the natural progression. My dad was a college swimmer. He's a swim coach to this day. And it would just make sense where it'd be like, all right, Corey, like you're going to be a swimmer. The path is laid out for you. And I love that my mom said no at first. She was like, we'll let him find this on his own time. We don't need to throw him into this right away. And then that changed when I was four years old. I decided that it would be a fun time to try to hang on to a pool vacuum in 12 feet of water, not knowing how to swim. And (laughs) nearly drowned. My dad saved me. He swam the whole length of the pool, fully clothed. And that was the turning point for my mom to be like, all right, maybe not like intense swimming, but he needs to at least learn how to swim. So I got into swim lessons a week later, was not scared of the water somehow. I guess I had really short-term memory back then, which has served me pretty well. And (laughs) got into it. I fell in love with just the escape that the water provided me. It was like, it didn't matter what was going on in this crazy world. I had this environment that I could just kind of retreat to and work inwards and work through things and I loved meeting people. I mean, you guys met my roommate, Jack, my other roommate, Jorge, and him all grew up swimming together. So I got to meet some of my best friends through it and we progressed and they'll get a kick out of it. They would kick my butt up until about, I want to say freshman year of high school was finally when I started to have these like breakthroughs of getting good. It was, I was enjoying it, but I was now finally getting good. And as I was getting better and better, that realization of becoming a Division One swimmer on scholarship was finally becoming like to fruition for me. It's funny how just the universe works. The moment that I felt like I was closest to it, I'm finally starting to go on recruiting trips my senior year of high school, visiting places. Coaches are starting to have these conversations like, hey, this is how much money we can give you. It's like, man, this is like dream come true. This is awesome. One Saturday morning, I collapse on the pool deck. I'm doing some sprints, and in between these sprints, I'm popping up to hop back in line, walk back, and I just felt off. And next thing I knew, I lost vision, lost feeling in my hands, my feet, and face planted on the pool deck. And ended up in the ER. They were like, hey, we ran all these tests. You check out. You're fine. It was just a freak accident. I was like, okay. That's weird. Uh, I'm not going to tell any of the coaches that are recruiting me this thing. Like, That's like the worst fear ever, right? Mm-hmm. Now your body, the one thing that's serving you is now failing you. And unfortunately, this kept happening with more and more frequency, like once a month, twice a month. And it was this unknown. I know now what it was. It was a, a cardiac issue in my heart, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was going to see some experts in the D.C. area. They're telling me, hey, just give up swimming. I was like, what do you mean? The doctor said that? Yeah. <laughs> the head, wow. The head cardiologist at GW. Uh, I forget his name. I've blocked it out after he told me that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that was what he told me. It's just like, why don't you just stop swimming? It only happens then. And I was like, you don't get me, dude. Uh, this is not who I am. And thankfully, my mom has come full circle then at that point, 15 years later, and was like, yeah, that's not an option for him. Like, he's going to keep going. I was like, yes, I got mom's support here. As I was going through that, I ended up at on a recruiting trip to University of Delaware, and that was the first school that I, like, fully disclosed everything that I was going through medically. And the coach just looked at me and goes, dude, it doesn't – we hear you, and we understand what you're going through. We don't care that you're going to, you know, might miss a few things here and there. We want you on this team. And they offered me – the most money out of all the schools as well. It's like, 
okay, universe, like I'm gonna take this route. This is where to go. So I ended up at Delaware, and as I'm now navigating this heart condition, still going to see cardiologists, still getting tests done, nothing was coming back conclusive enough to be like, this is the thing. I started my freshman year, and I started swinging really, really well there. And I was very fortunate that my freshman year became Delaware's first ever male rookie swimmer of the year which almost didn't happen because I had a heart, we kept calling these heart episodes. I had a heart episode three weeks before the meet, uh, our conference championship meet freshman year. And that was the first time that I had then gone to the team physician. And he was like, wait a second, you're dealing with all this? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, if this happens again, like I can't clear you to swim in the, the conference meet. And I was like, okay, uh, it won't happen again. Sure enough, like the next day, it turned out all this stuff was really stress-related and how mm. I manage stress. Mm. So <laughs> turned out that's a pretty stressful trigger there. And as that happened, sure enough, next day, have another hard episode, and I look at my coach, and he goes, is it happening? And I just shake my head, no. And he goes, you sure? And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Keep in mind, like as these hard episodes are happening, my heart rate, the one time they measured it was 350 beats per minute Whoa. and my blood pressure would tank wow so i i can barely see anything because my blood pressure is so low my eyes aren't getting enough blood flow to actually recognize what's going on and process and same thing with my extremities which is explained the numbness so thankfully my coach trusted me enough to say we're gonna let it happen and swam really well i uh, got surgery after my freshman year where it corrected everything was very fortunate of that. I mean, even the surgery itself was this 50-50, like, experimental, it might be it, it might not be. If it's not it, we just opened you up, and you have a two-month recovery period. Uh, if it is it, you have a two-month recovery period, and you're all healed. Fortunately, it was the latter. I was all fine. Through that time, got faster and faster. Sophomore year was a, a great year. Junior year, another great year. And then ironically, like this whole upward trajectory just came to like a crashing halt my senior year. And my last race ever was the 1650, which was my best event. For context, going into college, I was faster than the Delaware record out of high school. And I was like, all right, like this is, this is going to be my thing. I ended up swimming my last race that year, and I was slower than I was in my junior year of high school. So like having all this ups and downs every athlete has this vision of like going out on top and that just came crashing down on me and sent me really into like a dark place um, because on top of that academic path was to go to physical therapy school two weeks after career ending trying to process that i'm getting rejection letter after rejection letter from all these pt schools that i applied to and i was like okay now what like i really have no idea um but there's your there's your backstory context <laughs> yeah there is so much there and i appreciate the detailed story and your upcoming journey yeah and i definitely want to come back to your initial response in terms of a mental and psychological transition from a identity to a mindset mm. right because you wanted to expand your boxes of being confined by this limitation that i am a former athlete or whatever container that may be yeah but you realize wait a minute your mindset and your mental game defines your physical game. So you wanted to aim for that container of mindset more so than the actual identity of, oh, I'm in a box, right? So we'll definitely love to talk more about that with your mental journey. Uh, but the one thing I noticed is you referred to water as your sanctuary, mm. right? That's where you escaped to, uh, quote unquote, and you're shielded from all the external noises and this clutters and whatever the world may be. And that's your safe space, so to speak. Did that sanctuary feeling change when you became more intense with your athletic career? Because I'm sure there is a flip from, okay, it's a sanctuary when I'm just having fun, I'm just swimming yeah. casually, but now you're waking up at 5 a.m. every day. I've been, I was friends with a lot of former swimmers at Penn State, yeah. and I know how hyper-intense your routine is. Like You gloss over so much about the stress of your cardiac issues with your mental pressure of performing well plus your physical constraints. That's not a joke. Unless you're a former athlete like yourself, or who've swam on that level, you just can't comprehend how much physical stress you're going through every single day. 
So I'd love to hear about like if this question may not land anything, yeah. but I reckon there's some transitional, right? Yeah, um, water was my sanctuary. And ironically, I don't think I ever lost sight of that until my senior year. Like even through all of this stuff, it was still that escape for me. Um, I'm big into flow now and I love, I love just, I felt flow. Like I felt when I was in the water, I could hear the bubbles like going by my ears and I would love to just like watch my hand enter the, the water and see how the bubbles, you know, would react to that. And I just, even during sets where, or meets where I was literally going all out physically, I was just like, so I was like the observer of what was going on to me and that I loved. It's, I mean, for everyone, anyone that's experienced flow, like that is flow and it's the most like addicting feeling in the world. So for me, when that was taken away, then it was this like, okay, how do I recreate that in my life? I don't have time anymore to go four hours in a pool and just escape for a day. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I have work. What is this thing? How do I navigate this life? Yeah, 1000%. I think I definitely like to go to that reframe of how to create flow in yeah. everyday life because I've definitely found that is advantageous in just personal happiness, personal fulfillment. But I think as we're talking through kind of your swimming career, I think there's tons of mindset stuff that I'm fascinated with of the peak performance, right? I yeah. really admire how you shifted out of the like peak performance of doing it yourself and like helping other people with the more retroactive mindset things but circling into you know professional swimming in general right we just watched the olympics last night and we're kind of just admiring how four years lifetimes of training can go into a 30 second race right like the mindset behind peak performance were you into all of this mindset stuff at the time or were you more just dive in the pool and swim as fast as i can i'm just fascinated by your mental side of your swimming career i mean that's really where my interest in the mental side of things started was Mm. I knew very early on I was not the most talented kid guys that I was swimming against the club team that I was on was like the number one club team in the nation for a while it's produced a number of Olympians and world record holders so I knew if I like ever wanted to make a impact and a mark in the sport in my own right it was going to have to be through hard work and out mentally maneuvering people I was a distance swimmer, so I loved the mental game that each race provided me. Because if you guys saw the Olympics last week, you had this guy, Bobby Fink, from University of Florida, Team USA. He won gold in the 800 and the 1500. In both of those races, he came from behind at like the very last minute and then won. And that's kind of the beauty of distance swimming is it doesn't matter who's winning 99% of the time. It only matters who gets their hand on the wall first. So anything could happen there. And then there's this game that I would love to play where it was like, all right, am I messing with your head while we're racing? Or are you trying to mess with my head? Like we're trying to figure out. And it really boiled down to, it was like, well, how can I swim my best race, my best performance, detached from the outcome. But in the moments, there's definitely times where it was like, all right, I understand how Aiden swims. I'm going to get out in front of you as fast as possible and give you as little hope as possible just to test your mental fortitude. Like, Mm -hmm. see, can you hang? Can you hang with this pace that I'm going to throw down? Or are you going to crumble? And even though you might be more talented than me, I put you in like a a chokehold, so to speak, mentally, that you're just like, all right, I'll see him later. I guess he's having a really good day today. And then I just hang on for dear life. (laughs) Right, right. No, that's such a fascinating relationship because like what you just articulated, it's racing both another competition, but then racing internally too. You alluded to forgetting about the competition and racing your own best and trying to set your own personal best better than you were the day before. Yeah. But then also completely acknowledging that it's a competitive race. There is that competition, other people. I just think it's a fascinating kind of both sides of the coin, both competing internally and externally as well. Yeah, it really becomes this dance of knowing when do you turn to your competition, your external motivators for that push, and when do you need to quiet them? And I think that's the perfect example of life, right? We live in a a social media world where it's so easy to, to tune in and be like, oh, shoot, this guy's doing this, this guy just 
founded this company and made $10 million. Here I am just doing my thing. I feel pretty bad about myself. Knowing when to compare and when to just kind of stay in your lane and just be like, all right, I want to use that as motivation. Like, I want to go do my thing now because of this. Uh, swimming really taught me that pretty well, even though I forget it. I think we all forget the lessons that we're taught throughout life, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time. That's why life gives us those constant reminders, right? <laughs> the opportunity to continue to relearn them. It's frustrating. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> frustrating and fun. Always an adventure. I think you brought up a really interesting point there of applying those lessons into everyday life. Mm -hmm. And a big idea that we talk about on the podcast a lot is just better questions, better answers. So say you're working with a client as a coach and they're going through something like that, trying to find motivation internally, not compare themselves externally. Mm -hmm. Are there any like big questions that you'll ask your clients that kind of help them think about that lesson in a new way of maybe where to get their own internal motivation, look yeah. around as to what examples are, um, but just any big questions that utilize your clients, I think, might shine a light on some of these ideas well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in particular really boils down to values, like the values conversation. And it's one thing to just be like, hey, so what are your core values? And like, how many companies do we know now that have their five core values? They throw them on a poster board. They put them on the wall. I mean, the first job that I worked at a school was exactly that. And then I realized a year into it, I was like, these five things that they have posted here, they don't live those. They're hollow words on the wall. I'm seeing the daily action. And then I'm like, holy crap, how many of us have these values that we say are, are ours and they're really important to us, but our actions speak otherwise? So I love just holding up a mirror to people and saying, hey, look, this is what you told me your values are, but these are what your actions are saying. Let's dive a little bit deeper there. Let's find the root of these values. You say money is, you know, the most important thing to you. Okay, great. Where does that come from? Is that from social media? Is that from, you know, your parents? Getting to the root of that and the better we can understand where those roots are, then we can start to rewrite the values for them. It takes this level of vulnerability to, to strip it all the way down to its true core and say, okay, this is actually what I believe. And that's okay that it's different than my parents. I have, I've had that conversation with my parents around financial you know, value is a certain thing. They grew up as teachers and they value you know, culturally money is a different way than I do as an entrepreneur. And their first concern when I said, hey, I'm going to go start my own company and do my own thing. They, well, what are you going to do about your 401k? Where are your benefits going to come from? And what are you going to do about a salary? Like, how are you going to create a salary? It's like, I want to create something that's bigger than a salary and I'll figure out all the other stuff. Uh, <laughs> but if we didn't take that time to get on the same page, mm -hmm. there's a lot of resistance there. So helping people get clear on the route and then having those tough conversations with who they need to have it with to get on the same page. Because anytime we're not on the same page, that just leads to problems that's relationship 101 mm -hmm. yeah i want to go back to what we previously discussed so you know talked about a lot of these dance you're doing externally at yeah. times to fuel that competition into motivation and sometimes you're dancing with yourself internally so i read this interview by arnold and obviously he's uh, one of the best to ever do it yeah one of the few mental techniques he used to do before any olympians competition in the back room when they trained, they, he would identify strong competitors, right? And he would start planting the mental seeds. And one of the techniques he's always done is he will go up to them and he'll make a comment about, hey, how's your knee doing? How's your calf feeling today? Yeah. Just that seemingly short sentence will completely offset the other competitor's mindset because now they're looking at their calf against the mirror and now they're focusing on their knees. So they almost lose that drive. Yeah. But he also alluded to the fact that what you demonstrated beautifully that, but a lot of times it's internal focus. It's when you go out there, you don't see anyone else. Mm. But I think the difference between body physique building and swimming is even when you're submerging the water, you still almost see them, right? Yeah. Like obviously when you're back to back, you dive into the water and you resubmerge and you almost hear competition. So I really wanted to just comment on the mental side of the game is it is a game. Yeah. Right? Whether it's dating, there's a certain inheritance component to playing the game, so to speak. Um, so I just wanted to make that comment. And the second thing I wanted to talk about is you talked about sometimes you, you're having a good day, just like some of your competitions are having a good yeah. day. 
So for you as now a coach and a founder of this amazing community you've cultivated and looking back into your own experiences, this is more personal lens and personal curiosity. Yeah. Like, do you have like a checklist of some of the qualifiers you feel on your peak performance day? Or, you know, because not every single day is the same, right? On some days you wake up feeling more optimal than usual. Yeah. And it almost requires no work. So you're almost waking up into that flow state versus sometimes you have to do X, Y, and Z to cultivate that feeling. But I'm sure people like you who have done this in perpetuity, you understand that feeling. Yeah. Right. And so it's similar to Aiden's question about your clients, but this is more you personally is when you reflect upon your journey and even currently with your other activities that you're doing, how do you tell and how do you tap into that feeling? Is you're like, today's the day I'm going to do this or on this day I'm less optimal. So let's do this to bring up that up to speed, if that makes sense. Yeah. I love this question. I think it's really... One, it's just getting in tune to like your own biofeedback, your own awareness, what's going on in your body. I mean, <laughs> I think we all wish that we would wake up every single day and we're like, heck yeah, <laughs> like I'm going to do it. And how many times do we have like a blueprint of, oh, well, if I journal, I read, I meditate, I do this, I work out I, all before 6 a.m., like I'm great to go for the day. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, that's not really realistic. Or maybe it is realistic if I wake up at 3.30 and I'm feeling extra motivated and can knock all those things out. But very rarely are we doing that. Today was a perfect example. Like I woke up at my normal wake up time of 4.30 and I did not feel like waking up. (laughs) I didn't hit snooze, but I was just like, man, I'm dragging today a little bit. Okay, I'm just going to take a mental note of that. Like I wonder why that is. I, I love looking at biometric data and using whoop like looked back on my sleep data i was like oh that's interesting according to this i got a good night's sleep i'm wondering why i'm still mentally feeling a little bit foggier today than i could be when i have those kind of moments there's usually that's what i'm like i need to double down on the practices that i know work for me that i've figured out time and time again what am i going to journal on to get whatever thoughts are in my head out what am i gonna eat am i gonna stick to my normal routine or am i gonna try something a little bit different to bring back some emotions that i'm familiar with for example i had this routine prior to some meats where the big meats especially i'd have thinly sliced chicken breasts with mozzarella cheese and tomato and basil on top with a fruit smoothie and sometimes we were really lucky we got it from smoothie king and that became like my go-to pre-meat thing well to this day smoothies and those kind of snacks or meals <laughs> for most people trigger a certain response to me it's like okay it's like go time it's time to go right before you guys came over i had a, a fruit smoothie and i was like all right wow like i get this nutritional rush and very intentional with what was in the smoothie itself. But I'm also now getting this nostalgia, this routine that I had for years and years triggered and saying, hey, look, remember when we have these? That means it's it's time to like get ready to go. We're gonna have some fun with this thing, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. The only difference is now we're talking on microphones rather than swimming really fast in the pool. Yeah. Does that answer the question? No, 100%. And I think it also talks about what Tony Robbins referred to as priming, Mm -hmm. right? There's meditation, there's meditative state, but he does on top of his routine, what he does is prime his mental state even before he meditates. Yeah. And I sense a lot of that priming element from what you described. And it almost goes into what you just talked about alignment, Mm. right? It's not just to, it's not just enough to have a set of core values that you want to live by, but it's also to actually aligning your actions and reality into these listed values which your first company clearly didn't do. But obviously that's something you've been living by and living through and you're trying to instill that to your clients. But yeah, it it makes a lot of sense. And I do see, it's very clear to me why you're so successful and why you're creating this community to empower other forever athletes by instilling that mindset. So it makes a lot of sense. The thing that really came up for me is like you're almost anchoring in those feelings, right? So like, Mm -hmm. I think I myself as a very like type A like person doesn't like to miss the check mark of like, I'll just meditate for the fact of meditating for the check mark or like journaling. It's almost like journaling without intention, right? But like what you just articulated is it's really like anchoring in the intention of those practices and maybe using one more than another, depending on how you're feeling that day. Like if, you know, you have one of those jump out of bed days, ready to go after it, you might not have to do the journaling, the meditation, like all of the things, but recognizing internally, hey, how am I feeling? What can I do to get back? 
and then leaning into those I think is really valuable. Yeah, to your point there, like people have different personalities. Like if you're not a writer, mm-hmm. <laughs> journaling's probably not for you. If you have severe ADD, like meditation's probably gonna be a lot harder for you than someone else. It's understanding like what is your makeup, what does work for you the best. And the other thing too, I I'm with you sometimes I'm getting into that habit, I I just need to check the boxes. This whole to-do list is getting crazy long. One of the things that a coach of mine actually helped me work through was creating a to-be list. So setting intentions first for the day, and then with those intentions, they ran your to-do list. So what I mean by that is instead of on my to-do list today being, I need to record a podcast with you guys, I need to do this, I need to do whatever it becomes, all right, how do I want to be today? That's the first question that I'm asking when, when I wake up. I want to be present with the people that I'm with and I want to provide value to anyone that's listening in. Okay, cool. I'm going to set those intentions before I hop on this, before I hop on a phone call later today, before I hop in a meeting, whatever it may be. And with those intentions, then I'm able to show up and do the things way better than someone who's just like, I'm just running from thing to thing like a a chicken with his head cut off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So getting clear on those intentions, I think, goes a long way. Yeah, I really appreciate that distinction. It really reminds us of a conversation we had with another coach named Jacqueline, and she introduced us to the idea of be, do, have, right? I think so much of society tries to have and then do and then be successful at the end of having the money or doing a job well done. But you're almost flipping that on its head, right, of starting with the being, kind of those adjectives. And I think what you talked about of like, the feelings you're trying to cultivate Mm -hmm. is that something that you practice with clients as well of like focusing on what feelings may be helpful for them absolutely Um, we're going through a book right now called claim your power by Mastin Kip and he alludes to the idea that we're all motivated by specific emotions Mm -hmm. but it's like recognizing what emotions we're motivated by and then going after them so you nodded yes so I'm sure you've got things to say but I'd love to hear how you look at feelings emotions as motivators yeah absolutely it's I mean that's really what helping people cultivate awareness is about, right? It's being able to tap in, not just tap in, but recognize like why they're feeling that way. Like, why do I feel pissed off when motorcycle goes by while recording? Like, let me, that's trying to tell me something. Like I need to, to relax and reflect on that and pause and process and figure that out. But same thing with other things in life. I've been really fascinated with this notion of enjoyment versus pleasure Mm. lately. Like, how many things do we do on a day-to-day basis that are pleasurable in the moment, but do we really enjoy them? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's going to be, again, different for everyone. And what I mean by that is I'm reading right now How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and it's based off of Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism, and they bring it up in there. It's like, obviously, there's pleasurable things in life. We got sex, we got drinking, we got all of these things, right, that gambling we can just turn to and feel immediately good. But are we getting a deeper level of satisfaction? And that's enjoyment. That's fulfillment. So many of us are just after that pleasure-seeking thing like right now that we're missing the whole point of getting that deeper level of fulfillment. So helping people recognize that and then act on it because I think nothing's worse than bringing awareness to, oh, shoot, I got a problem. I'm not doing this right. And then just sitting in that. So helping people recognize that and then move through it goes a long way too. Yeah. How do you view energy? So I think as a textbook classic male coach, yeah. I think the machoism is always rooted in athletes, right? And But I could tell from the way you communicate and the way you are very big on intention setting and almost leaning into your own energies. Mm-hmm. Like, how am I feeling today? Am I feeling more maybe male energy dominance? Am I feeling more feminine energy dominant? Because yeah. I do think fluidity matters in terms of how you navigate your performance right obviously you talked a lot about it's important to tap into your feelings and obviously intention shines through but for you how do you approach that because i think it's important to show that to the listeners that oh you don't have to live by a certain box once again it's all about expanding the boxes and just because you're a male athlete it doesn't mean you have to behave like this framework according to the society and you're smiling as you speak so i'd love to know how (laughs) you yeah like not only break through your own box but to tell them like listen just because you're an athlete that doesn't dictate your behavior yeah it applies a lot to athletes it can apply to anyone that identifies with just one label as the only thing that defines them 
and I'm smiling. <laughs> I immediately go to think of if you guys remember years ago, Sports Center ran an ad with like Albert Pujols being the machine mm-hmm. and he was in the copy room or whatever, and he's talking to the machines. And I'm like, man, we came from a society where we wanted to all be machines. We all want to perform automatically. And ironically, it's one of those things kind of like if you're trying to grab water, like the more you try to grab it and actually grab it, the less you're actually going to grab. There's some finesse to it. And that's really what I encourage people to experiment with and try is like, hey, maybe you're gripping too tightly to the control right now and you're suffocating the flow of your life because you're so type A, you're not getting what the universe is really trying to, to give you. Because you, you're so close-minded to it. Whereas on the other side, there also has to be some action. And we, we call it masculine, feminine energy, whatever you want to allude to it as. There's got to be a balance between both of them. You can't be this hippie that's just like, yeah, just like be, man. Like, we're just going to be on the beach and like, it will all work out. The, the universe has got our back. There's got to be some action backing it too. So finding that balance, recognizing your personality type first and then acting accordingly like if you're really masculine try experimenting with letting a little bit of this feminine energy out and take out the sexual innuendos between those two it is what it is everyone has masculine and feminine energy within them i kind of hate that they named that after the sex genders you know what i mean because we get these certain notions in our head it's human to have both sides of those Real quick, could you kind of just define them a little bit? Like, I've always associated the masculine with a lot more order and kind of organization, whereas the feminine is more like in the flow. But how do you think about both those energies as separate things and then even balancing them internally of asking, how am I feeling? Could I use something that creates more order or creates more flow? Yeah. I mean, you just explained it pretty well. That's pretty much how I would say it as well Is this on the masculine side of things, it's to your point of masculinity, macho, like we're going to just do, we're going to suffocate the feelings. We're going to push past it. Perseverance, determination, all of those things. And you need those. You definitely need those. And then on the other side, more feminine, we're more going with the flow. We're probably stronger tapped into our intuition. and We're feeling all of the feelings and we might not be as urgent to take action. because we're just like, eh, it's fine. Like it will work out. That's probably are procrastinators of the world that are like, I'm going to plan a trip next week. I'll buy my ticket to fly like the day before. Mm-hmm. And it will just all work out. The universe will give me a good rate and it'll be fine. <laughs> and you know, for some people, that it does work out that way. I don't think that's the best way to live your life, but that's just my opinion. But to find the balance of the two, it's understanding that it's constantly flirting with that line of how much is too much on one side or the other and finding your flow, finding your lane that works optimally for your hardwiring. We all have a certain hardwired programming inside of us. Better we can understand that, then we can learn how to optimize it and run it efficiently. Yeah, I think you just articulated it beautifully of we're all wired differently, both from our nature and our nurture, but it's like finding out what works specifically best. I mean, to your point of the people that allude to, oh, the universe will just take care of us. I think Ben's alluded it to the plane (laughs) took off into the ether and then never came back down. They're just kind of like floating around. God will take care of us. Yeah. Which I think, yeah, it works very well for different people, obviously, but awareness of where we land on that spectrum, I think to your point is exactly where the starting point is. So how do you like coach people through this a little bit because it is so fluid, right? Certain things work for certain masculine sides, certain feminine sides. It seems like a very trial and error type of approach. Of yeah. How are you feeling these things? But do you have like specific starter practices? Like we're just trying to make it a little tangible for listeners saying, hey, I feel too structured or I feel I was recently talking to a friend. She said she was never able to take the same medication for more than like three days in a row just because like it's living in the feminine, right? Not yeah. having that order or like sticking to habits is something that I know a lot of people struggle with being able to really exercise every day or however often they want. So how do you coach people through this trial and error process? Is it, you know, introducing the new ideas, questioning what works, what doesn't work? Yeah, it's introducing them to new ideas and then looking at the biofeedback that their body is giving them Mm -hmm. um, along the way. So introducing super structured day where 
every 15 minutes was scheduled from the moment they woke up to the moment they laid to bed. Some people need that. That is when they are they're the best. And I'm one of those people. Like I, I have to schedule in free time into my day. It's like, all right, I got two hours of free time. Like, what am I going to do here? <laughs> Otherwise, I don't get free time. And the next thing I knew, I'm, I'm burnt out by the end of the day. So I'm one of those people where I need all that structure and then taking a look at, all right, what feedback does that kind of day provide me? If I can do that for a week straight, what's the feedback? How am I sleeping? Better yet, how, like, what's the quality of my sleep? What's going on with my weight? Is it fluctuating? Is it staying the same? What's going on with my overall body composition? How are my hormone levels? What's going on with my heart, my heart rate, my respiratory rate, all this stuff. My original undergrad degree is in exercise physiology. So I nerd out on like the biofeedback side of things. I think really biofeedback is the answer to like grounding those people that are aloof. I mean, how many people that you know that took off on that plane and they're just in the ether? When you talk to them, you're just like, you seem really aloof right now. Like, I don't really, I got, I can really jive with some of the stuff you're saying, but it's a little bit all over the place. I think biofeedback helps ground that and helps ground us into, okay, this is why I'm doing this. It's really interesting to me to see when we come up with recovery routines specific to an individual that work really, really, really well. And it can be different. For me, for example, I recover really well when I'm, when I journal, when I, do a nightly journal as well called a wins log where I write down like five to six wins from the day that helps me just make sure I'm continuing making progress and I hit some sort of cold therapy I'm pointing over to the ice bath like I'll hit the ice bath I'll take a cold shower something like that and then get to sleep within like that reasonable window that I normally go to bed at and when I do that oh my gosh my vitals the next day are through the roof like I'm ready to perform Nine times out of 10, I think we can always get better at that science behind it. But yeah, nothing's better than when you find what works for you. Yeah, that's awesome. I just want to highlight real quick for the listeners by double clicking on your routine of doing a nightly journals of the wins. Yeah, a lot of so I'm a huge Tim Ferriss fan and I've read almost every single book he has. And he has a book out from a while back called Tribe of Mentors. Mm. It's pretty much he interviews 100 most influential people in respective fields. And he tries to extract their tips and tangible advices and techniques and tactics in the book. Now, one of the commonalities among a lot of the guests he interviews is a lot of them, like a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Before they go to sleep, they don't necessarily journal per se, like you document specific W's for the day. Yeah. But more so, these people, they don't end their days based on a difficult task. Mm. So, for example... If they had a tough task or challenge at work they couldn't quite solve, they would actually downgrade and work on an easier problem so that they end their day with a win mm-hmm. because that's another priming. So the next morning they wake up, it's perpetual, right? It's also residual where they're not starting off from a deficit point, but they're starting from a victorious point, which is what you're doing. Yeah. And it is a very effective technique that I've done it before when I first read the book. I didn't really stay consistent with yeah. it. So neuropathies were never built. But I do want to highlight that for the people that there is an actual psychological benefits to that. Uh, and the second thing is I want to take this opportunity to take a soft pivot. Yeah. Since you're just talking about the importance of human being, right? You can't just be on the being. Yeah. Like those are the people that planes never came back Earth. But we need this meat suits. We need the vehicle of our human identity, literally. Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about the performance aspect so far in the interview. And I'd like to take the pivot and connect that in terms of your physicality, mm. your physiology versus your psychology, right? Which is the intersection of your work, right? It's very obvious through your yeah. work and the content I've done research through. Um, so for you, first of all, this is a very broad question. So take it however you want to go. But you as the founder of this community and the coach and this embodiment of forever athletes, how do you view the intricate relationship between psychology, like mental health and physical health in terms of your performance? And it doesn't have to be peak performance, but because I do think that a lot of Americans like to view physical health and mental health as two separate entities. Mm. And it's cool that mental health is being more destigmatized and people are becoming warmer to the mental health area yeah. but most people still treat them as two separate entities and we all three of us understand that's a fallacy that's a misbelief you need to treat them as one so how do you view that relationship yeah i mean i think it's a, a give and take one like one feeds into the other so i mean there was times where i was the physically most fit in my life and i was 
so mentally unfit and borderline depressed and very, very in the shit, so to speak. And then on the vice versa, like there's been times where mentally I've been in a great headspace, but physically I just wasn't there. I think they feed into one another. And especially with the former athlete community, what I see is further that disconnect is for the athlete from where they used to be to where they are now, the Mm. harder it is usually to process that. And what I mean by that is me, for example, being a distance swimmer, I was super, super skinny. I was like 155 by the time I graduated. And then I put on about 40 pounds in nine months, quote unquote bulky. You know what I mean? And then I was like, oh, shoot, I'm really, really unhappy. Okay, I'm strong, but I can't run a mile without my knees hurting. Like, what is this? Mm. I was used to being a distance endurance athlete. I should be able to go out for at least a mile run with no pain. (laughs) That would make more sense. So, yeah, I think the the two feed into them, and I think my coaching has evolved as my journey has evolved, as I've tackled new physical challenges and mental challenges. And then I love creating opportunities where the two can kind of collide, hence the running two marathons in the past year completely solo. I was like, this seems like a new fun frontier for me to tackle. Most people hear that, and they're like, that's insane. But I knew that was like the next level that I wanted to kind of flirt with and learn in that process. Definitely. I want to double click on that idea because as someone who just started training for my first marathon, I'm overwhelmed and almost it doesn't seem possible to do a 26 with Mm -hmm. no one around. Right. I think with something like running or that has so much like adrenaline and energy built in, like even if you're, say, running on an abandoned street where no one's around and then running in like the center of Venice or something like I feel like you just run more upright and have like the energy of the people around you which in my first half marathon I definitely felt you know you have a little poster board where you like high five or whatever the kids holding but what urged you to do it by yourself and what were some of the big lessons that you learned through that first you know first solo marathon or even subsequent and also why'd you do the second like doing one is like a good bucket list thing but what inspired the second as well my competitive nature inspired the second. <laughs> I wasn't happy with how I did on the first one. So very early quarantine, another friend of mine who's a coach, he had a client. They were working towards having her complete a 5K. That was going to be the thing for her. And then it was supposed to be the third weekend or fourth weekend in March. And obviously we all know what happened. March 2020, things mm-hmm. got shut down the week before. And he was like, oh, my God, the race that she's been prepping for forever. She's devastated. And he pivoted and he threw together this virtual 5K to celebrate her. And he invited me to partake. And I was like, dude, I haven't run more than a mile. And I couldn't tell you how long. Like, it's been forever. Uh, I was like, all right, whatever. It's for a good cause. I'll try this out. So did it. And I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. So then that piqued my curiosity. And anytime I'm curious on something, I tend to double click on it and keep going down the rabbit hole until I'm not curious. And I've learned what I want to learn from it. So the next weekend, I did a 10K. I was like, oh, that wasn't as bad. I was like, I want to do a 15K. I've never run more than five miles. So even hitting the 10K was like this accomplishment. I was like, I'm just going to keep pushing the, the boundaries, see what, what's up. Run a 10K. I was like, not too bad. Then I ran a half. I was like, huh, okay. I wonder, what's a full marathon feel like? Like this was kind of, I was flirting with some pain in there, but, you know, I got through it. I wonder what a full feels like. So I made a a commitment then and there. I was like, I'm going to run a full on, what was it, Memorial Day weekend uh, 2020. And I'm going to do it at the beach, Ocean City, Maryland, up to Rehoboth and back. And I'm going to partner with a nonprofit to help raise some money. And that was really kind of what got me through both of them was being anchored into a cause that was bigger than myself. Mm. Uh, because, yeah, it is, a, it is a very daunting task to just be in it for you. I wanted to use that platform to bring awareness to these other great organizations that were doing great things. So continue to train. Uh, I will say don't do what I did the first go around. I did not taper. I just continued to went up. The Sunday before, I ran a tw- my 20-mile like training run. And I was like... Wait, before your first marathon? Yeah. The night before? Yeah. <laughs> Five days before, Five days, Sun, okay. Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and then the following Saturday was when I was running the full. I was like, oh, I'm just going to like knock this out. Because 
up until that point, every distance that I knocked out, I finished feeling like I had something left. Mm. 20 miles was the first time that I finished, and I was like, holy crap, that was a really humbling experience. Not to mention my feet are super blistery and bruised up, my legs are shot. All right, this is going to be a testament of like, how am I going to recover in five days to go and do this? Mm. I kind of put it out to the world that this is what I'm doing. I set up this solo race where I had certain people that were going to help me out with nutrition along the way. And I was like, I can't let them down. Like, I got to do this thing. So I led up to it, did it. And as I'm going through that first one, man, right from the start, I knew this hurt. It wasn't, there was no moment where I was like, I feel great. I stepped out of the, the door. It was pouring down rain and I would go, well, I told myself I'm starting at seven, so it looks like I'm starting at seven, and I'm going to get really, really wet during this, and that's going to be what it is. And did that, and it's really funny because of the rain. The people that were supposed to help me out with nutrition along the way, yeah, man, like we're just like meet you at the end, and I was like, you're kidding me, right? It's not how nutrition works. Yeah, (laughs) I need this fuel while I'm going. Fortunately, I had some like goos and stuff. I ran mm-hmm. with a camelback uh, and had some water and was able to get through it. But it was brutal. That first one was absolutely brutal. I remember calling the same coach that organized the 5K. And I was like, dude, I need your motivation right now. He's a motivational speaker, too. Mm-hmm. He fired me up. <laughs> it was so funny. Because at that point, really from like 20, mile 20 onwards, it was just absolutely brutal stopping where I was walking, running running quote-unquote at that point the worst part was was i started where i was solo and i just ran route one all the way up to rehoboth and then i'm starting to feel this way and that's what i'm starting to run into it's now 9 30 in the morning the casual runners are out doing uh. their morning jog all around rehoboth and that was just getting in my head and was like god i would crush these people in a race normally yeah. and here i am barely able to walk like this is so embarrassing this is crazy he helped me get out of my head and like finish Mm. but even the finish was me just kind of like walking across this imaginary finish line looking at my phone checking the gps and i wasn't thrilled with my time but i was i was happy that i finished it and i was like all right great and then come this year when i moved out here i signed up for a competition called high rocks that was supposed to be april 10th in downtown LA at the convention center and they got canceled because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, but I was, I was actually training for this one and that gave me about seven weeks to figure out like, what do I want to do? And it's like, huh, I wasn't <laughs> happy with that marathon time. Let's do that again. Like, let's run it back. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll find another nonprofit locally out here and we'll make it happen. That presented a whole nother host of challenges. I felt great from the start. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I realize like no matter how great you're going to feel you're still going to have moments in that race where you're going to feel like death (laughs) and you just have to play in your head over and over like just keep moving forward one foot in front of the other get out of your head as much as possible of like what does it feel like one foot one foot one foot and the next thing you know you do 26.2 miles and you're good to go (laughs) thank you for listening to another episode of discover more We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.